You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. If, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, you need to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. And then put something to, to just create easy reference over to Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Mark 10, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. And if there is ever a morning that you need your Bible open so you can read these passages with me, this is it. And if there's ever a morning you need to be praying for this room as we work through these things, this is it. So let me just encourage you on both of those two things. Make sure you have a Bible open to make sure that, uh, that you're praying that God would show up in some really big ways and some gracious ways across this room. And, uh, and here's why it's so important that we pray uniquely for this morning. In 12 years of doing like pastoral ministry type work, there is no issue that is more difficult to deal with pastorally in counseling across the table from people than the one we're talking about this morning, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There is no, there is no, no issue more difficult than that. And in light of that, I want you to know I have like a ton of angst in me today on God just being really good to this room. And, and I've got angst. Let me give you two reasons for that angst. First of all, that I know that there is great pain associated with divorce. For many in this room, there is great pain. Now, for those of you who have not been personally through a divorce, um, I'm going to read a quote to you. And it's really important that you hear this. Because you need to be able to empathize. We need to be able to empathize with the sort of pain that is in this room this morning. Uh, This is um, from a book and from a specific chapter dealing with divorce and remarriage. He, He says this, For many of you who have walked through a divorce and are now single or remarried, or whose parents were divorced, or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy, and disappointment, and anger, and regret, and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash. It is emotionally more heart-wrenching, listen to this, than the death of a spouse. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually unclean pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded in divorce. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or a widower or a person who has never been married. It is in a class by itself. A sense that the future has become devastated can be all-consuming. And then there's the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that that the scars will not cripple the children or ruin their marriages someday. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And add to all this that it happens in America to over four out of every ten married couples. So we need to sail on that for a moment. Allow that to shape the the temperature and, and what's happening in this room is there is deep, 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 deep pain in this room with what we're talking about. And the second reason I feel an angst about it is not just on the kind of the social, emotional part of it, but 
um, on the biblical part of it. The Bible is not as clear in this particular issue as I would like for it to be. And anyone who tries to put nice and neat little bows around every little part of this, they are lying to you. It is not that clean cut in the Bible. Here's the way that I would say it. The Bible gives us everything we need to know about this issue. But it does, and it's talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But it does not give us everything that we would like to know. And so it puts us in this situation. It puts us in this situation where we're trying to apply these big truths to these specific situations. And listen, the, the situations brought about by divorce, there are millions of them. So we're trying to, to apply these broad principles, these broad things that we're learning in the Bible into these specific situations. And I'm just telling you from, from my perspective and my experience in pastoral work, this is the most gut-wrenching areas to do that in. It is the most difficult. It is like where I have more sleepless nights than in any other issue. And if you've tried to be faithful to the Bible and applying it to situations, you know what I'm talking about. It is really, really, really hard. So I have a lot of angst for those two reasons. Enough angst that um, I called my parents earlier in the week and uh, they always ask what passage am I preaching that week. And I told them Mark chapter 10, one through 12. And then I told them what it was about, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And my mom said, hmm, hmm, why don't you just skip that one? And uh, after I self-righteously judged her, I had to admit that between me and God, that's the question I'm asking with this passage. It would be so much easier just to brush right by this and pick it up, you know, in the next uh, little part of, of Mark 10. But I can't do that. And there's a couple of reasons why I don't think it would be wise for us to skip over this. And let me just give you a couple of these. Number one. The reason why we need to deal with these issues around marriage, divorce, and remarriage, number one, is that divorce is rampant in our culture. It is a huge cultural problem. Not not only is divorce like okay for whatever reason in our culture, it is also cheap and easy. So if you just Google the word divorce, here's the things you're going to define. You just Google the word and you're going to find stuff like this. Divorce online, dash, fast and easy. Easy online divorce, Texas divorce online, $148 divorce in three easy steps. You you Google it and you're going to find this, hire me before your spouse. This is the sort of stuff that's happening in our culture. And because it is so cheap and so easy in our culture, it leads to a ton of divorce. Let me just kind of give you the statistics for the last 100 years. In 1910, one out of 10 marriages ended in divorce. In 1920, one out of seven. In 1940, one out of six. In 1960, one out of four. In 1970, one out of three. In 2000, one out of two. And that would be reflective of basically where we are right now, culturally. And now you compound all of that. That's where it starts, but then the tentacles branch out from there. And so if you take all of the kids in the United States five years and under, the minority of those kids will grow up in homes where mom and dad are together throughout their childhood. The minority. This is how big of a deal it is culturally. And and compound that, here's reason number two, that most Christians are biblically like unaware of what the Bible says about these things. There is a vacuum of awareness about how the Bible addresses marriage, divorce, and remarriage, even among Christians. 
And let me press that one step further. Even among pastors, there is a lack of awareness of these things, a lack of wrestling with the Bible and trying to figure out how does God address this and what does he say about this? One guy who's written a ton of books on counseling, he he said this, I've worked with pastors and have done so for 14 years. I know most of the problems they face and I know that, that, that large on their agenda of areas for study is the whole territory of divorce and remarriage. Pastors as a whole simply do not know how to handle the naughty questions they are being called upon weekly to face in regards to this issue. And I'm not referring, he says, to liberal ministers, but to conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching men. And I think he is exactly right. I think it's, you know, one of the reasons that you have not heard, probably in this room, you have never heard a sermon on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The most likely reason, two reasons. One is because pastors don't want to touch it, first of all. And I sympathize with that. But they don't want to touch it. But maybe even bigger, they don't know what to preach when they touch it. That there is like a vacuum. So you can just imagine if there's that much like fogginess with pastors, what that looks like on just... A a normal Christian just kind of living and doing life, what it looks like on that level. So there's like a serious need to wrestle with the Bible and try to get our mind around what does God say about these things. And, And third reason is I really want us to be a church that both comforts and confronts, especially as people are walking through difficult marriages. So just think about this. When two sinful people come together and now they're one flesh in marriage. You just know that sin is going to cause difficult days for all of us. That is what sin does in marriages. It makes them really, really, really difficult. And if we're gonna be the sort of people and have the sort of church that can help people in the midst of that, then we've gotta be able to both comfort and confront. We comfort with grace, but it's grace with truth. See, if you comfort, but there's no truth attached to it, that is not comfort. That is like giving false hope. It's both comfort with grace and confront with truth. And to be able to do both of those, we're going to have to wrestle with the text. We're going to have to wrestle with what does the Bible say about this. So I just want to give you the invitation. This is really what the sermon is doing. It's an invitation for you to wrestle with these things. For you to get with your Bible and to try to learn what does God say about these issues. And here's why this is so important. There is not one person in this room who has not been touched by divorce. Not one. From a parent, brother, sister, what? There is not one person who is not touched in some way by divorce. And if we're going to be a place that can help people through that, And in the midst of that, we've got to be people who have wrestled with the Bible and have got our mind around what it is that God is saying. So it's that important, that important that we cannot skip over it. So here we go. Uh, Matthew or Mark chapter 10, first 12 verses. I want to give you four big things that we see here. Four big things in this passage that Valentine read earlier to you, these 12 verses in Mark 10, 1 through 12, four big things. And here is the first big thing I want you to see in light of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Here's the first big thing. I want you to see God's view of marriage. God's view. This is the primary point of the passage. The primary point that Jesus is getting across, the primary thing Jesus is trying to do is show us the point and purpose of marriage. So pick it up in verse two in chapter 10 of Mark. 
So a crowd is gathered in verse 1, Jesus is teaching, and then all of a sudden the Pharisees come up in in verse 2. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is that okay to do that? Now Matthew adds this one phrase to the end of that question. He adds the phrase, for any cause. Is it lawful to divorce for any old reason? That's the question they're asking. Verse 3, Jesus answers them. What did Moses command you? And they respond back, and they're going to quote and look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. They said, in light of Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Verse 5, Jesus responds to them, answers them. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And now Jesus is going to clarify the point and purpose of marriage in verse 6. So he's going to look at this in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation. So he's saying, I just ask you to think about what Moses commanded you. And you went back to Deuteronomy 24, which Moses wrote. But I'm asking you to go back further than Deuteronomy 24 because Moses also wrote Genesis 2. And I want you to go all the way back to Genesis 2 and let's think about the point and purpose of marriage. So he says, let's go all the way back to what Moses wrote there. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24 and he says this. Uh, God made them male and female, quoting Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, the Pharisees have come and they are asking Jesus to clarify, what are the reasons that we can get out of marriage? And Jesus says, I'm actually not going to clarify that. Here's what I want to clarify for you. I want to clarify all the reasons you should stay in your marriage. I want to give you the point and purpose of your marriage. I want you to see God's design for marriage. I want you to see that. And essentially, he's saying two things about God's design in Genesis 2. Number one, he's showing us that, that marriage is God's doing. That it is, marriage is created by God. That it is God who joins two people together into one flesh. It is God who does that. A pastor does not join two people into one flesh. Justice of the peace, a judge does not do that. Queen Latifah at the Grammys definitely does not do that. They don't. God is the one who brings two people together in a marriage. It is God's doing. In other words, God created marriage, and God is the one who defines marriage. One man, one woman, lifelong commitment. And here's what that means. That as human beings created by God, we don't have the right to redefine marriage when God has already defined it. We don't have that right. God created it. He's the one that defined it. It is God's doing. But secondly, in Genesis 2, we learn this about marriage, that marriage is for the glory of God. That more than marriage is for human beings, for you, for me. More than it is for us, it is for God. Marriage is about the glory of God. This is why marriage exists. It exists to say something about God, to point to God, to show something about God. Namely, it is meant by God to show and reveal the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what marriage is meant to do. This is what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 5. He is giving um, instructions to the ladies in marriage. Then he gives instruction to the men in marriage. And then in Ephesians 5 verse 32, Paul takes a step back and says, now this thing that we're talking about, it's a mystery, this marriage thing. 
And it's referring to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage has a unique place in all the relationships around us. Marriage is the unique place that God stamps it and says it is going to be a visible representation of the invisible love that Jesus has for the church. That's what your marriage is meant to do. It is meant to show the world how God loves his people through Jesus. So if you're the husband in a marriage and you're married in the room and you're a husband, here's what God has given you a unique opportunity to do in the way that you love your wife, in the way that you would pursue her, speak tenderly to her, run after her, forgive her. In the way that you're doing all of those things, you have this unique role of showing the world how Jesus pursues and loves and woos and wins over the church. And if you're a lady in in here and you're married, God has given you this unique role to show the world what it looks like for the church to respond appropriately to Jesus in the way that you respond to your husband. And it doesn't matter how good or bad your husband is. When you respond appropriately to your husband, regardless of how good or bad he is, you are showing the world just how good Jesus is. This is the point of marriage. See, if you're married, you are caught up into something much bigger than you probably realize. And the reason that Christians stay married is not because they stay in love. It's not because they have emotional feelings for one another. That it's not because kind of their personal wants are being fulfilled. The reason Christians stay married is because they want to tell the world the truth about how God loves his people. That's why Christians stay married. That's the point of marriage is to show the world that. So I think that leads to the question. Is this what your marriage is showing? Is is your marriage showing this is how God loves his people? That God loves his people enough to at great cost to himself send his son Jesus who lived a perfect life in our place, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead on the third day so that all those who believe in Jesus can be reconciled to him. Is, are our marriages showing the world that sort of crazy love? That sort of ridiculous love that God has for his people. That sort of never ending, always pursuing, never stopping love of God. Is it, is it showing that? Husbands, are you showing the world what it looks like for Jesus to love his bride? Ladies, are you showing the world what it looks like for the church to respond appropriately to the love and grace of Jesus? Is that happening in our marriages? See, this is what marriage is for. And this is Jesus' primary point. He's trying to show us all this is the point and purpose of marriage. This is what it's about. It's this unique opportunity to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the view of marriage. This is what he's showing us in Mark 10. Now, here's the second thing we learn in Mark 10. We also see God's view of divorce. And let me just point out a couple of things that we learn here. God's view of divorce. Number one, we learn that divorce is a result of sin. So look at verse 3 in Mark 10. So they've just asked, is it lawful for us to divorce for whatever reason? He responds, Jesus responds, what did Moses command you? They respond, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Jesus is saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
All of this divorce thing, that is all a result of sin being introduced into Genesis 3 and now sin playing itself out in the context of two people who are married. It's a result of sin. He's saying it's a result of the hardness of your heart. It's a result of sin used interchangeably there. That's the, that's the reason we have divorce. Now, let me clarify here. That's not saying that every divorce is sinful. But it is saying that the reason for every divorce is sin. We sing the difference there. Saying that the reason, that, the, the only reason divorce exists It's because sin exists. If you rip sin out of the universe, you would also rip divorce out of the universe. This is what he's saying, that it's a result of sin. And secondly, and this is implied in this passage, but we see it kind of more broadly in the Bible, divorce is hated by God. Divorce is hated by God. This is Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, 15, and 16. In basically every other version of the Bible or English translation, In Malachi 2.16, you're going to read these words. And the Lord God said, I hate divorce. It grieves me. I hate it. Now, around our house, we try to be really careful with words. And so, um, like, and I'll just give you an illustration of this. Uh, One of my kids here recently, we were eating kind of a dinnertime meal. And uh, one of them said, I hate soup. And now anytime they, they make a statement like that, I'm going to poke around on that because they, that is not being careful with words in that moment. And there's something at stake with not being careful at words. So I typically poke around and say something like this. Wow, you just used a really, really strong word, hate, to describe a really, really small thing, soup. That's a big word, strong word for a small thing. And here's the problem. If you keep doing that, whenever you're, you come to a point where you're actually going to talk about a big thing, you're not going to have a strong word left. If you keep using hate for the word soup, when you get to big things like sin and like Satan, you're not going to have a word left to use in that moment. It's going to be so diluted. So we've got to be careful with our words and use appropriate words like soup. Maybe the word dislike would be more appropriate. And let's save hate for the big things, sin and Satan. Now, if, if we're being that careful with words, I think God would be even exponentially more careful And God in in Malachi 2 is using a strong word, hate. And he's using it carefully to describe a really, really, really big thing called divorce. Strong word by God. And he's addressing a big thing in his eyes, something that grieves him deeply. And just in thinking about the point and purpose of marriage, it's easy to see why God would use such strong language. If marriage is meant in the eyes of God to to be the place, like unlike any other human relationship, if it is meant to be the place that shows the covenant love that God has for his people, if marriage is meant to tell the truth about that, then it would make sense that when divorce happens, and divorce is essentially tearing at God's design for marriage. Marriage is supposed to show God's covenant love for his people, but divorce doesn't tell the truth about that. It pulls the threads out of that. It distorts God's covenant love and the picture of God's covenant love for his people. And so in light of that, it's easy to see why God would use such a strong word to describe it. Because it's a really big deal. Like God really wants marriages to tell the truth about his covenant love, his never-ending, never-breaking love for people. And when it doesn't do that, it grieves the heart of God. Now, maybe to even take that one step further, I think it would also be fair to say that God hates divorce because of the consequences of divorce. Not only does it make 
tremendously deep gashes into the souls of spouses. It makes tremendously deep gashes into into the lives and souls of children. And listen, in our culture, I think that the predominant kind of way people view divorce is it's gonna solve my problems. And that is not the biblical way to think about divorce. It may solve a problem or two, but it's going to create a whole nother host of problems, many of which will ripple throughout the next few generations. And many of those problems and consequences, you will not even live to see them. There's a lot of consequences that God says, I hate divorce because of that. So in light of what God says here, I hate divorce, can we all just take a moment to think on this? Selah, think, meditate here. If anyone in this room this morning is contemplating divorce, hear what God says, I hate it. It grieves me. It doesn't tell the truth about my covenant love for my people. And can we just hear those words this morning from God? It grieves me. I hate it. Can can we just hear the, the encouragement to hang in there, to pursue reconciliation, to pray for change, to pray for God to do miracles? I mean, God is saying, I hate divorce. Now, here's the third thing we learn about divorce. Is that in some way, God seems to regulate divorce. Now, you can see the sort of caution that I'm using in describing that. I'm using words like seem and some, I'm putting a lot of caution around it, but it seems that God intends to regulate divorce. Although, although marriage is meant by God, designed by God to show God's covenant love to his people that never breaks, never gives up, never stops pursuing, it seems that God does have a few exceptions to that, a few biblical grounds. He gives a few biblical grounds to make divorce permissible. Okay, let me just describe the two grounds. I want to work through these with you. And one is going to be in Matthew 19, so you need to flip over to Matthew 19. It's going to be the first one. And I'm going to use this word to describe this first biblical grounds. I'm going to use the word adultery to describe it. Matthew 19. Now, Matthew 19 is a parallel passage to Mark 10. So it's the same setting, the same scene. Jesus is addressing the same group of people. It's a parallel passage. Let me just kind of give you the context of what's happening uh, when you get there. So just like in Mark 10... The, the New Testament culture, virtually everyone in the New Testament kind of, you know, first century world agreed that there were grounds, biblical grounds for divorce, that, that divorce was permissible on certain grounds. Virtually everyone agreed on that. What they debated was what those grounds were. And the debate went back to Deuteronomy 24. So, and this is the passage that when Jesus says, what did Moses say? You want to know if you can divorce, what did Moses say? They quote Deuteronomy 24, and this is where the debate is. And here's what Deuteronomy 24 says. This will be on the screen for you. It says, whenever a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. If he's found some indecency, then he can write a certificate of divorce and it seems to be permissible. But there is all sorts of debate on what this indecency was. All, it's a very vague and, and not clear word. So there's all sorts of debate on this. And there was two major schools of thought in the first century. And they lined up between, or behind two major rabbis of the day. And the first rabbi was, was Rabbi Shammai. This was the first major kind of line of how people thought about what does indecency mean in Deuteronomy 24. And Shammai believed that indecency meant some sort of sexual sin in the confines of marriage. So adultery is what what he believed it meant. And then Hillel, another rabbi, 
and this is the majority view back in the first century, he believed that what Deuteronomy 24, this indecency, he believed it meant anything undesirable, anything at all. So literally, this is in their documentation, that if a wife burns breakfast, that would be grounds for divorce. So they, that was the like, any reason at all sort of a, of a group of people, irreconcilable differences and we're good, incompatibility and we're good. I find just any sort of, of a cause for it and, and I can divorce her. So Jesus is answering that question. Who's right, Shammai or Hillel? The more conservative, just sexual immorality and adultery or this any cause people? And this is what uh, Jesus answers in Matthew 19 verse nine. He, an- he finally answers the question. He says this, I say to you, Whoever, or I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, now Matthew is the one gospel. So in the, in, in the parallel passages, Mark 10 and Luke, he, those don't add this exception clause. In this particular gospel, Matthew adds it though. He's the one place that adds it. Matthew adds this exception. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it would seem here that what Jesus is saying is that when two Christians are married, that when one commits sexual sin, it so severely severs the marriage covenant that it makes divorce permissible. It's a big word, permissible. First century world, they thought it was required. Jesus is saying, no, it's not required, it's permissible. It seems that it might make it permissible. Now, here's why I need to give a warning. The view I just described to you, I think has really good company. And I think it would be where the most, the, the widest swath or the most consensus is about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, that it is a ground to make divorce permissible. That's the widest, most consensus view of this. But it is not the only view. And there are a lot of people who I love, who I look to, who are very influential in, in my life and in, in theological life and pastoral life who do not think Jesus is giving a grounds for divorce within marriage here. Okay, so there's there's some that don't think that. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Number one, that exception clause is not in Mark or Luke or Paul. This is the only place in the Bible that it's found. Number two, there is a word for adultery, like sex within the confines of marriage or sexual, sexual immorality within marriage, but he does not use that word adultery. Rather, he uses the word sexual immorality that is a much more ambiguous word. Could be sex before marriage, could be sex within marriage, but it's very ambiguous when he could have been overtly clear with adultery. And thirdly, this group kind of tying that, that you know, adultery versus sexual immorality, that word together, they would say that this, you know, this group believes that this exception applies not to, to divorce in the context of marriage, but to breaking an engagement. So they think this is not applying to marriage. This is applying to engagement. And here's their logic for that. Matthew is the only gospel writer. So he's the only one to make this exception. And he is the only one that talks about Joseph and Mary and their whole engagement period. So they're engaged in Matthew 1. And all of a sudden, in the middle of their engagement, Mary is mysteriously pregnant. And Joseph knows that wasn't his doing. He He wasn't the cause of that whole thing. And so in Matthew 1.19, listen to the words it uses to describe their engagement. Matthew 1.19. And her husband, they're engaged, but it says husband. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, 
a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved, they're engaged, remember, to divorce her quietly. So they're saying that in first century culture, engagement was much stricter and held to a much higher standard than our culture. And what what Matthew is doing in Matthew 19, he's not really referring to marriage in, you know, how we would think of marriage. He is referring to the betrothal or the engagement period. So he is including this. He's the only gospel writer to include this because he's the only one that talked about Mary and Joseph's engagement. And he's trying to make the point here in Matthew 19 that Joseph was okay in putting her away if he would have done that. So, so that's their view. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a grounds for, for divorce. It is grounds for, if you're engaged, breaking off an engagement. Now, I am very sympathetic, and I would say we as Stonegate elders, we are very sympathetic to that view, and I would imagine that we will have some of our elders in the future actually hold to that view. But I and we are not sympathetic enough for me personally to stand on it or to ask our church to stand on that. So, so we, we are agreeing that this seems to be a, a, a reason to make divorce permissible. This idea of adultery in the confines of marriage. And so, and, and let me just give you one reason for that. Um, in answering the question, why does Mark and Luke not include that exception clause? I think it's equally plausible to, to believe this about why that is. I think it's equally plausible to say that they didn't have to because culturally it was assumed. Everybody in their culture believed that there were, there were biblical grounds for divorce. And everyone believed that sexual immorality was one of them. So they didn't need to clarify it. They would have assumed it. So maybe I could put it in a, cult, you know, in a 21st century illustration this way. If I were to say, is it legal for an 11-year-old to drink? I don't need to insert the word alcohol. Culturally, you know that's what I'm, I'm not talking about water. And you know that, right? And so it's the same sort of a thing. When it's assumed so... Um, so much so, there are times that you just don't need to clarify. It's already implied in what it is that you're saying. Okay, so here's, here's the end of that story is, we are standing on this ground that this is a permissible means for divorce. Now I need to, to get a, of a big butt in here and a clarification. And I want to make this overwhelmingly clear. Although this seems to be one area that Jesus makes divorce permissible, When we're talking about two Christians, divorce is never inevitable. And it is never desirable. That even in the worst of situations, God can redeem these things. He can redeem them. I love what one guy said writing about this. He said, since all believers have the word and the spirit, they all have, or they have all that they need to bring about not only reconciliation in their marriage, but in the future, they have everything they need to bring about a marriage that sings. And I believe that. I think that's the thrust of what Jesus is saying. He is not saying, hey, let me just give you a reason here, and if it happens, you can, you can leave. That's not the thrust of what he's saying. The thrust of what he's saying is it's not desirable. It's not inevitable. If I can part the Red Sea with just words from my mouth, I can rescue and redeem your marriage regardless of the sort of unfaithfulness that it's experienced. This is the thrust of what he's saying. And I have just seen this play out in multiple people in our church family, multiple couples in our, my particular home group right now. And I've just seen it play out enough to say there is hope. 
The men hang in there, keep pursuing, keep running after, show the world what it looks like to love an unfaithful spouse. Pray for him, seek reconciliation, seek repentance. Don't let bitterness grow in your heart. And you might just be amazed at what God would do in your marriage. It would be a trophy of God's grace to watch God restore a marriage that has experienced great unfaithfulness. And that can happen. And the thrust of the passage is work for that, desire that, run after that. So that's grounds one, biblical grounds one. Here's biblical grounds number two. And I'm gonna use the word abandonment to describe it. The word abandonment. This is 1 Corinthians 7. So if you wanna flip over there, 1 Corinthians 7, it's also gonna be on the screen for you. And here's how it goes. To the married, 1 Corinthians 7, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm about to tell you something that Jesus has already said. The wife should not separate from her husband, but look at verse 11. But if she does separate, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So it's just like what we read in Mark. Verse 12, to the rest I say, Not, or it's I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus did not clarify this. I'm having to clarify this. This is authoritative scripture. I'm clarifying it right now, he's saying. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not, this is key words, is not enslaved, verse 15, but has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you, uh, you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's the context in 1 Corinthians 7. They had planted a church in Corinth in a very pagan area. Everybody's unbelievers. And they plant a church and people are actually meeting Jesus. And when they're meeting Jesus, it's creating this scenario. It's creating a scenario where in a marriage, one spouse is a believer while one isn't a believer. And Paul has told them that an unbeliever or a believer should not marry an unbeliever. So he's having to clarify, in light of what I told you, an unbeliever should not marry, or a believer should not marry an unbeliever. What do you do when God saves one of us, so now we're married and one of us is an unbeliever? What do you do then? And here's the, the thrust of what Paul is saying. You should stay in there. You should remain as you are. You should work at it. You should show your husband what it looks like for Jesus to love you. You should show them that. You should pursue him. You should serve him or her, that unbelieving spouse. You should run after that and work for it. That's the, the point of the chapter. But in verse 15, he says, if that unbelieving spouse abandons, if they bow out of the marriage, then you are free. In other words, that is a ground for divorce. It would be permissible under that scenario, unbeliever and a believer. The believer is pursuing and running after and working for their marriage. But the unbeliever says, no, I'm out. Under that scenario, it would seem that that is a second ground for what we would call a biblical divorce. That Jesus would okay and make permissible divorce. Now, let me clarify just one or two things here. The majority of people in the history of the church, I think the widest swath, the, the place when I look at church history and think, that, that's where the, like, the people that I love, like the most Bible-believing men and women, that's where they've stood, have stood right here. 
that these are the two grounds biblically for divorce. Now think about all the things that does not cover. That does not cover a husband looking at the wife and saying, but she's crazy. And her looking at him and saying, he's a moron. And him looking at her saying, she's lazy. And and back the other way, he's irresponsible. We don't have anything in common. We're so different. It's irreconcilable different. That's how bad it is. It, It leaves room for none of those things. None of those things are in there. None of those things make what would be considered grounds maybe to make divorce permissible. None of those things. Now, let me throw in this one caveat. When it comes to 1 Corinthians 7 and this idea of abandonment, it does not make it expressly clear what all might fit into this category of abandonment. So I'm going to say this very, very, very cautiously. That could there be a situation where an unbelieving spouse is so hard-hearted and sinning in high-handed ways over a prolonged period of time without repentance, without remorse, and it's the sort of sin that is doing unbelievably great damage to everyone around them. Could there be scenarios where verbally they are not demanding a divorce, but with their actions they are demanding it? Could there be? And with great caution, here's what I'm saying. We are willing to get around the table and wrestle through that. Although we're always going to lean hard towards reconciliation and making a go out of it and, and praying for God to do miracles in your marriage. But we are willing to wrestle with that question. That's the caveat. So two views, two, two biblical grounds that make divorce permissible. Adultery and abandonment. Now, really quickly, let's deal with the third thing we learned in this passage. God's view of remarriage. God's view of remarriage. This is where you pick it up in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, verse 10 says this. And in the house, the disciples ask him about the matter. In other words, we need more clarity. You're gonna have to make this more plain for us. And Jesus goes on in verse 11. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband for unbiblical reasons and marries another, she commits adultery. Okay, so one view of what Jesus is saying here is there is never a point where remarriage is doable. There's never a point where that's true. And here's, here's one of the, pro, you know, the things that make that that view really difficult is that is a well-honored position in church history. For the first several hundred years of church history, basically every church leader had that view. There is no means for, re- for remarriage. And they were closer to the New Testament language, culture, all of that. And they're saying that's what they felt like, you know, was at play here. But here is one reason why I don't think that's right. Those same early church fathers also believe that if your spouse, you didn't divorce, but your spouse died, they also restricted remarriage in that case, although Romans 7 makes it perfectly clear that you could remarry. So I think that there's bigger things at play as to why they were that restrictive. And I think it's mainly that they had a negative view of all things physical, things like sex and marriage in general, they had a very negative view of. So I don't believe, although that's a well-honored position, I don't believe it's the, the right one. And here's how I would articulate what I think is the, the, the most, has the most consensus around it, the view of, what, of how divorce and remarriage on the other end works in that. Here's the most succinct way I could summarize it. It's on the screen for you. Biblical grounds for a divorce give biblical grounds for a remarriage. 
So in other words, when the divorce is permissible on your end, like you're not the offending party in this, when, when a divorce is permissible, it also makes remarriage permissible. So think about this in the terms of the first you know, exception. Matthew 19, grounds number one, adultery. So you are not the offending spouse. It would seem that the Bible in that scenario is saying that if you're not the offending spouse and you get a divorce, a remarriage would also be permissible at the end of that. And so, and I, I take Matthew 19, that exception clause, to apply to accept in immorality and, and all remarriages are off except when it's like a biblical d- divorce, like except in terms where divorce happened because of immorality. So that exception goes in both of those two ways. So I think that the remarriage there is in play when biblical grounds were met. And then you get, think about this applied to grounds number two. So you've got an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse. The believing spouse is pursuing and doing everything they can to make the marriage work. But the unbelieving spouse is saying no to that. They have abandoned the marriage. In that scenario, I think what 1 Corinthians 7.15 is saying in the idea of you're not enslaved is that you are not only free to divorce, but you're also free to remarry. So those two reasons. But let me just say at the back of that. That never, although it may be permissible, divorce and remarriage, it's never inevitable and it's never most desirable. Reconciliation is the thrust of the Bible in light of the purpose of marriage. That's where the thrust of the Bible lies. Okay, now I need to apply this. And we're trying to kind of land the plane here. Let me apply this. And there's several groups I need to talk to in the room. So let me first apply this to our singles in the room. Our singles. Now I'm specifically thinking of our young singles. It is absolutely imperative, young singles, that you wrestle with what God says about marriage and that your view of marriage is in agreement with God's view of marriage. That is imperative, imperative, that your view of marriage matches God, the point and purpose of your marriage, that it is about the display of the gospel, that that matches God's view. And secondly, for our young singles in the room, It is imperative if you are going to date someone, consider marriage with someone, that that person loves Jesus. I cannot like emphasize that enough. If you are toying with marriage and dating with a person that does not, not just a Christian by name, but loves Jesus, you are flirting with misery for the rest of your life. It is that serious. They need to love Jesus. And secondly, that person not only loves Jesus, but you need to make sure that person also has a biblical view of marriage. Their view of marriage is God's view of marriage. I cannot emphasize that enough. Listen, there is no reason for a person to stay in marriage unless they have God's view of marriage. When things get difficult, there's no reason other than God's view of marriage to stay in. And if they don't have God's view of marriage, when things get difficult, they are going to bail. I heard a person illustrate this with the movie, and I hope you haven't seen it. He's just not that into you. Y'all know it? If you've seen it, we're trying not to judge you right now, but it's hard. There's this character that makes this statement in that movie. What if you meet the love of your life, but you're already married to someone else? So what if you meet the love of your life, but you're already married to someone else? Should you just let that person pass you by? That is a perfectly legitimate question if you do not have God's view of marriage. If you don't have God's view of marriage, I would even say this, you should be asking that question. But if you have God's view of marriage, 
That is an absolutely ridiculous question to ask. Absolutely ridiculous. You're not in your marriage for your own little personal wants. And when you've got God's view of marriage, you are providentially married to the love of your life. You just have to figure out how to love them. That's the deal. It's a ridiculous question in light of God's view of marriage. So singles, get that down. I cannot emphasize that strongly enough. Let me apply it to marriages in the room. So married couples, and I want to first apply it to to couples who are in good shape right now. Generally speaking, your marriage is, is in good shape. To the guys, pursue your wife. Love your wife like Jesus loved the church. Run after her, take walks with her, talk tenderly to her. Pursue her, forgive her, repent in front of her. Make your marriage a priority. To the ladies in the room, respond to your husband like the church should be responding to Jesus, even if your husband is a loser right now, even if he's crazy right now. It's saying everything to the world about what you think about Jesus. Respond like the church is supposed to respond to our faithful groom, Jesus. Pursue him, forgive him, run after him. Work for it. And can I just say the best thing you can do if you're married in the room is to get your marriage in good community. It's the best thing you can do to to let people in on what is happening in your marriages. The last church I worked for, we had a couple that I loved. They taught a Sunday school class. We even sent interns to live with them. I loved this couple. One week, they just nailed their Sunday school class. It was awesome. And the next week, they come in and say, we're getting a divorce, and no one knew that they were having a problem. And listen, can I just say, at that point, it is almost impossible to deal with that. It's almost impossible. See, divorce always starts with small little frustrations. And small little frustrations are really easy to deal with, comparatively speaking. What's almost impossible to deal with is when the first conversation happens around divorce papers. So get your marriage. I cannot like scream this or emphasize this loud enough. Get your marriage in good community. If this is your church home, get in a home group and let people know how you are doing. It is deathly serious. I mean, I cannot like, Make that serious enough. Get in a home group. Now, if you're in the position this morning where you're contemplating divorce, let me just hold out in front of you. Remember the purpose of marriage. We're not into this marriage thing for for primarily our personal want and satisfaction. We're into this marriage thing to show the world something about God. His covenant love, his never stopping, never breaking love for his people. That's why we're in this thing. And secondly, if that is you, let me plead with you today. Let your home group leader know where your marriage is. Get your marriage under the authority of our elders here and let us help you. Please let us help you in that. Now I need to apply this quickly to divorced people in the room. And first let me say this to divorced people. We want very much so to have a culture around our church that celebrates grace, that doesn't look down upon sin. Namely, and in particular, this sin of divorce. We want a a culture here that celebrates that everything is redeemable, even divorce. We want that celebrated here. And so if you ever feel like people are looking down on you for that, please let us know. We want to correct that. 
But now let me apply it to, a, to, to some situations. Number one, let me apply it to if you're divorced and you're single right now and you were divorced for biblical, on biblical grounds. In other words, you were not the offending party. You were offended against and divorce resulted in that. Number one, I just want to remind you that with or without a remarriage, that Jesus is enough. I just want to just gently remind you of that. And secondly, if that is you, and remarriage is a possibility in your future, it is imperative. Cannot stress that enough, if that's you. It is imperative that you wrestle with the Bible and you get very, very clear into who is, is like in the pool of people that you could entertain a remarriage with. Because in our day, when people are getting divorced for any reason, not biblical reasons, but any reason, it is very likely that you are going to run into a person that you would like to marry. But rather than remarrying them, you're gonna have to say no to dating and you're actually gonna have to encourage them to go reconcile with their former spouse. That is very, very likely. So you need to get your mind around what is gonna okay a remarriage and what is not. Now, if you're single in the room and you were divorced without grounds, in other words, you're single and you shouldn't be, grace is big enough for you too. It's big enough for you. And here's, I think, the the number one thing I'd want to say. First of all, I just want to, as gently as I can, say that if you haven't repented, repentance is necessary. Like genuine repentance where you're acknowledging your sin before God and you're running to Jesus where all of our sin is redeemed. If that hasn't happened, it needs to happen. And then on the backside of that, we want to encourage reconciliation. If you're you're single and shouldn't be, we want to encourage reconciliation that God can actually like part the Red Sea and he can actually change your heart and your former spouse's heart to make a new marriage work. He can actually do that and not just work, but sing. We've seen it happen around here. And I tell you, that that is like such a trophy of God's grace when it does. That's possible. And thirdly, if you're divorced without biblical grounds, it wasn't biblically permissible, but you've remarried, even in light of remarriage not being biblically permissible. So in other words, you're, you're divorced and remarried without biblical grounds, or you have married a person that did not have permission to be married. It wasn't permissible for them, but you married them. It was for you, but it wasn't in this context. In either one of those two situations, first I want to say that is serious, very serious. And, and then it comes to the question, of like, what do you do in that? Like, what do you do if, if you've done something that you shouldn't have? And virtually no biblical commentator or scholar that I know of in all the reading I've ever done would say you should break your marriage now to go back and fix your, the marriage that you should have been in before. No one's saying that. 1 Corinthians 7 applies here. Remain as you are. Now your job is to figure out how do I love this person in a way that shows the gospel to the world? How do I do that? Like, if that's you, upon repentance, God can bless even the marriage that should not have happened. But repentance is necessary. And repentance does not sound like this. Man, I'm glad I didn't know this like 10 years ago because that would have really messed my plans up. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like this. God, Father, I was biblically ignorant of the boundaries around divorce and remarriage. And I did something that I shouldn't have done. And that's sin. And God, I am praying the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ. I am asking for forgiveness. God, I am repenting. I am begging for mercy. 
And here's the good news. There is mercy to be found there. Repentance is available there. My experience has been for people who have remarried when they shouldn't have, especially if there's, they're Christians and they have the spirit of God in them, that there is a nagging sense of guilt and shame associated with that. And the only way to deal with that, the only way, you can't bury your head in the sand and deal with that. The only way to deal with that is to wrestle with what the Bible says. And if your remarriage was sinful, for you to repent of that, Run to Jesus for grace for that. That is the only way to deal with a guilty conscience when you're experiencing shame in those sort of a ways. And God invites that this morning. And I hope that there's some of us that will experience that this morning who are married right now in situations that we shouldn't have been married in. We would experience the sort of free grace that God offers. Okay, and I'm landing the plane with this. Number four, and I wanna leave on this note this morning. That God redeems divorce. Amen? Gosh, that God redeems divorce. It is not the unpardonable sin. It, like all other sin, is a redeemable sin. The whole book of Hosea illustrates this. You know the book of Hosea? Here's what God tells Hosea to do. Hosea, I want you to go and marry Gomer. And oh, by the way, she's a prostitute. And so Hosea actually does it. He buys her out of prostitution. He looks at her and says... I'm going to be faithful to you for the rest of your life. I'm making that sort of a covenant with you. He wins her over. He pursues her and he marries her. And it's going well for a while. And then she leaves again. She sells herself back into prostitution, selling her body to the highest bidder. And God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to go get her again. And Hosea does it. He goes and he buys her out of prostitution again. And he remarries her. He's looking at Gomer and saying, I'm not done. I'm still going to pursue. I'm still coming after. I'm still running after you. I'm still going to woo you. I'm still going to work for this thing. I'm going to make a new covenant of love with you. Now, who does Hosea and Gomer represent? They're not in the Bible to highlight themselves. They're in the Bible to highlight God and us. Who is Hosea? He is God in the scriptures. He is the God who sends his son Jesus to redeem us in the worst of unfaithfulness. In the midst of all of our spiritual adultery, God comes in and redeems it all. He pursues us in all of that muck and mire. And we're Gomer. We are the guilty party that God over and over again affirms his covenant love to. So if you're in here and you are divorced, For whatever reason, if your marital contract was torn asunder, here's what you can know this morning if you're in Jesus. Your eternal marriage contract is still intact. Ending with this quote from Kevin DeYoung. To those who have sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be, and let's just say for all other sin in the room, run to the cross. It is no light thing to tear asunder what God joined together. It is no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second remarriage. But God's grace is not light. And God's grace is not small. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. But the contrition must be real. 
The admission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. But a broken heart and contrite spirit, the Lord will never deny. Run to God. Plead with God. Know his adopting love. Experience again his justifying and free grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.